Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. If you are not familiar with Euros Hartley's, we're a proudly Western Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company. Please don't hesitate to jump on our website at www.euroshartleys.com to learn more about the services we can provide. This episode is an absolute cracker. We have such an awesome opportunity to have a conversation with Dr. Liz Dallymore, the CEO of Argenica Therapeutics, stock code AGN. Liz graduated from university with a PhD in neuroscience. She then went on to learn the business side of the life sciences and biotechnology industry, to then enter the corporate arena and apply all of her accumulated knowledge to being CEO and growing an exciting biotechnology business that is developing novel therapeutics to reduce brain tissue death after stroke. Liz is a life sciences technology and data strategy, commercialization and innovation specialist with more than 20 years experience. She was a winner of the 2019 Women in Technology WA Awards, featured in the Sunday Times STM magazine for International Women's Day 2020 as one of three WA women making a difference. And she was selected as one of 25 Australian female leaders in STEM, Science, Technology, Engineering and Maths for the 2022 Federal Government WILD program, which is Women in Leadership Development. What an opportunity. So without further ado, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the wonderful Dr. Liz Dallymore. Dr. Liz Dallymore, thank you very much for joining us on Finding the Front. It's such a treat. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. Good on Can't you. Wait. Yeah, thanks for coming in. It was really, really great that you could take the time out. Now, Liz, I just want to start by giving a little bit of a summary for our listeners on, on a bit of your background, but also your achievements. And I just want to put it all into context because when we get into our conversation, it'll all flow. And I just was blown away by what your recent highlights and achievements are. Just to put into context, you were a winner of the 2019 Women in Technology WA Award. You were featured in the Sunday Times STM magazine for International Women's Day 2020 as one of three WA women making a difference. You're a co-founder of a medical device startup company. You established WA's Data Science Innovation Hub as an inaugural director. You were selected as one of 25 Australian female leaders in STEM, which for those of you not familiar with what STEM stands for, it's science, technology, engineering, and maths. For the 2022 Federal Government WILD program, Women in Leadership Development. And finally, you're the inaugural CEO of ASX-listed biotech company, Argenica Therapeutics. 
So that's just the start. And we've got a fascinating journey to talk through and I can't wait to get into it. So just to start with, Liz, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how this journey evolved. And I'm really interested as to how you've got a pedigree here in science, life sciences, biotech, and, and how that started. Yeah, sure. So thanks for that intro. It makes me sound quite accomplished. <laughs> it's, qu- sure. it's quite phenomenal. I'm not sure uh, um, I feel that way uh, in myself. But yeah, look, I grew up in WA. I grew up in Perth, so in Netherlands. Spent all my childhood here. I uh, grew up with five older brothers. Went to school here. So you're one of six. I am one of six. I yep. And yep. five older brothers. Five older brothers. Um, wow. Good Catholic family. So. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so we went to school here. Went to UWA. So did an undergraduate degree in neuroscience. Did my honours and then uh, flew the coop to London, like I think a lot of Perth people do. But look, I guess growing up, science was always such a massive part of my family. My dad has a PhD in nuclear physics. He did a PhD at Oxford Wow! Um, on a Commonwealth scholarship. So very, very bright man. Actually was instrumental in studying Notre Dame as well. So we always had a sense of, I guess, you know, curiosity growing up, you know, science engineering was a, a really big part of our childhood. And I just loved it. I think, you know, I've got Two other brothers that have PhDs in engineering, so a very, you know... Intellectual family. Well, yeah, yeah, but, but curious as well. <laughs> yeah. And maybe never knowing when to leave university. I mean, <laughs> that, might, that might be a part of it. So I guess just growing up in that kind of environment and with dad in particular, you know, I actually pulled out some children's books around nuclear power the other day and uranium and how, you know, how important that is. And, you know, they're books I grew up with. Reading the, when you when Reading you were in the early 80s, yeah. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it was always... So was it at the point where you were going to sleep and dad was reading you about nuclear About nuclear physics, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Splitting an atom. My memory came to my primary school and, you know, gave a talk to our year six class about, you know, he when he was at Oxford he he split an atom and what that meant and, you know, the electrons flying off and yes, it's quite quite phenomenal. I was really proud of him. So Oh wow. And what about your mum? How did she go? What did what did she do with herself? So well having six kids. She was flat out. She was flat out, five of them being robust boys playing footy and hockey every weekend running us around. So yeah, and look, I guess mum, you know, mum's incredibly intelligent, but she grew up in an era where, you know, if she didn't do nursing or teaching, she wasn't allowed to do anything. Right. So she she moved to Sydney pretty quickly after school and, and worked in banking, moved to London and sort of and met my dad in Europe. And then they came back and had the brood and yeah, I, I do remember she wanted to buy a creepy crawly for the pool, so she went off and got a job because Dad said he could manage the pool, but no, nope, she wanted a creepy crawly, so off she went and, uh, and got herself smart, a job. Smart, yes. very smart. Yeah, yeah. So you grew up in Perth. You went to JTC, John 23rd College. Yep. Yeah, yep. and then on to UWA. Yes. Now, because of the background in science, the relationship that your dad gave you with science and your understanding, was it a natural progression to go in and start with what would turn out to be a PhD in neuroscience? 
With the University of WA? Yeah, look, I don't think I ever had the intention to do a PhD. I'd seen my brothers go through it and obviously dad had one, but I did know that I wanted to do something in science and something in life sciences in particular. And I really, in my undergrad, really gravitated towards neuroscience. You know, what is happening in the brain? I just found it absolutely fascinating. It's pretty much the only organ where the anatomy, the structure doesn't really tell you anything about the function. And I just found that absolutely Absolutely fascinating. So I gravitated towards the neuroscience um, and then I did my honours in neuroscience. And then I think, you know, I wasn't quite ready to do a PhD then. So moved to London, had a couple of jobs in science. And when I was working in London, I met a professor of neuroscience at Oxford. His name was Colin Blakemore. And he was a very well-known neuroscientist and we got on really well and he was like, you, you should do a PhD, you know, you'd be great at it. Come to Oxford, come and, you know, work in, with me in my lab and we'll make it happen. So that's sort of, I don't think I had, you know, kind of really thought about it. And at that time, my visa was running out in the UK anyway. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity, not only to do a PhD with an amazing uh, scientist, but yeah. also stay in London longer or stay in the UK longer. And enjoy it. <laughs> and enjoy it, yeah. You graduated with first class honours. Yeah. and. You left UWA and went and started working in London. Yes. And the yeah. opportunity to go to Oxford originated when you were in London. London, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah which was amazing. And I think, you know, Dad had been there and, um, you know, I knew the history and I knew he absolutely loved his time there. So I did jump on the opportunity to, yes. to do that. Look, I, I had some questions about Oxford per se. I mean, it sounds like such a beautiful university. It know, is. And, and, yeah. and, and one that is so historic. It's an hour out of London. Yeah. It's built for a great foundation for any sort of career. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things I learned about Oxford is that they've got four academic divisions, medical sciences, mathematical, physical and life sciences, humanities and social sciences. You were in the physical and life sciences part. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in the anatomy and human biology area. Yeah. Yeah. How long were you there for? So I was there for about two and a half years. There were some challenges with my PhD, but I think, you know, everyone that's done a PhD will understand there are, there are challenges. And at the time, Colin Blakemore had sort of moved on and I was, I was then sort of with another scientist. So I did decide to finish the rest of it off at UWA. So yep. I moved back and came back to my old honours supervisor, Professor Alan Harvey, which, yeah, was fantastic. So just finished the tail end of the PhD at UWA and got my PhD. So you got your PhD done mm. and that was when really your career just started to take off yeah. in terms of you were able to, while you were studying, I gather, get a job with what was then known as the Australian Neuromuscular Research Institute. Yeah. So that's, uh, that job was my first, I guess, proper job working in scientific laboratory and I was working with a professor looking at stroke, so rehabilitation following stroke. So we were based at Charlie's, which is where the ANRI, as it used to be termed, was down in the basement. And we were looking at, is there ways following stroke that we can work with physiotherapists to really enhance the notion of neuroplasticity following stroke? So 
the ability for the brain to change itself through rehabilitation uh, following stroke. So ultimately other parts of the brain taking over if you're losing the function of your arm, can we get other parts of the brain to take over and take up that, that functionality? And was that part of your PhD? No, so that that was separate. So that was just a job, right? So yes. uh, working as a research assistant um, at the ANRI but really did spark my passion for neuroscience and and neuroplasticity in particular. So my PhD itself was looking at the biological drivers of neuroplasticity in the brain. So when you've got an injury, so a spinal cord injury, can we induce regeneration and that that neuroplasticity within the brain using upregulation of of genes, therapies, that sort of thing? Right, okay. Interestingly, the ANRI went on, and I know we discussed this earlier, but went on to become the Parent Institute. Yes. And, it, and there's a revolving relationship with the Parent Institute, as we'll get to. But how did that come about? Were you there when that unfolded? When it became Parent? Yes. So I was on the board. So had gone from ANRI to um, Wanri, so putting the WA in front of the Australian uh, and then uh, it involved, evolved into the Parent Institute through uh, philanthropic donation from the Stan Perrin Charitable Foundation. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And what an institute it's become. It's amazing. Absolutely incredible in terms of mind blowing. Yeah. Able yeah. To achieve. Absolutely. Such generosity and what's being achieved, we'll get to. So moving on from there, you then went into. A number of roles, when I say a number, you've had three particularly significant roles in, I would say, in a consultancy environment. Mm-hmm. And in that period, you worked with PricewaterhouseCoopers, Ernst & Young, and then KPMG. And it was interesting that this seems to be a theme where you got into early stage opportunities for biotech life science companies to evolve yeah. and understand the government opportunity, yep. the incentives, yep. the research, tax rebates, that sort of thing, yeah. which really looks like a foundation for where you have ended up in the corporate arena. Yeah. Yeah. But just how did you get involved in that? And, and I'd just be interested to know for other mm. aspiring neuroscience yep. PhD graduates yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and others, what made you get into the sort of, I'd say almost the commercial side? Yeah. yeah. Look, I think, so when I moved back, to Perth from the UK, um, finished my PhD, you know, 20 years ago, roughly, there there wasn't a biotech industry here, right? So it's quite hard if you don't want to go into academia, there's not, you know, you sort of finish this PhD and you think, well, what can I do if I don't want to go into academia? What's out there for me? So I did have a friend at PwC, Jeremy McManus, who, I mean, he had a, I think, an aquaculture degree or something. (laughs) So I was like, okay, you've done science and you're working in this place that I knew nothing about. Yeah. It was what what is it that you do? So he actually sort of got me to come in and interview and meet the partners and, and that was in the the sort of incentives R and D tax team at, at PwC. Completely foreign world to me. You know, I was in the tax division, knew nothing about tax. I yes. was twenty eight years old, I'd come in the grad program. I remember twenty year old saying to me, You are so old. What are you doing here? <laughs> that's, that's great. But a great foundation, you know, kind of going in through their grad programs and those firms do it so well when you're starting out, so you get to rotate around all the different areas. But I, I was in R and D tax, stayed as a grad, but only stayed as a grad for, for three months before they sort of realised I'd I'd done a bit more in, in life. Yes, so yep. uh, so promoted me and 
And it, look, it was a fantastic foundation, you know, and I think learning the tax side of things, the accounting side of things, the financial aspects of businesses in a real world context, you know, and, and having big clients from, you know, Rio, Shell, all those, those sort of major companies to, down, to smaller sort of biotechs. So yeah, fantastic foundation. And then I moved to Melbourne with PwC and then got an opportunity to do more sort of innovation advisory work at EY in Melbourne. So moved there and, and did a lot of work with biotechs at the time. Because Is that when you started to stream more into biotechs more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah in because Melbourne? in Melbourne, I mean, there's just so many and so many listed sort of smaller yes. biotech companies. So yeah, absolutely. So so did a lot, lot more work in the biotech space to really understand the mechanics. And it's quite good sort of consulting to them because... You know, I spent six years in Melbourne really understanding the way that they were doing things, what was working well, what wasn't working well, working really closely with the auditors uh, where where the clients were being audited. So scrutinising financial accounts and looking at uh, financing strategies and advisory around incentives. So all sorts of things. So it was great. Oh, I mean, what an amazing opportunity, given that you had an ambition to get into the corporate side of it. Yeah, yeah. Just if we concentrate on this segment of your life, though, for a little minute, you've, it's about 11 years that you're in this space. Yeah. Um, and you ended up being the National Director for Research, Engagement and Commercialisation for KPMG, which is quite a, quite mm. a big role. Yes, yeah. Could you just give us some, a broad snapshot on how do you see, what do you define as a biotech company mm-hmm. and then the landscape in which we're operating in Australia? When we look at biotech, a lot of people think the state's. Yes. Yeah, and, and the opportunities coming out of the States, yeah. the US, and, and what the large size of commercial opportunity. When you look at Australia, is it developing as a hub? And where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Where does WA sit? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just, yeah, yeah. I'm interested in your views. Yeah, so. And we uh, can lead into corporate in a minute. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think, you know, Australia as a whole has come on in leaps and bounds in the sort of life sciences area, the biotech area. You know, CSL, ResMed, those kind of bigger companies where you can have head offices in Australia and, you know, so they're sort of proving that. I think ultimately the challenge has always been that the big markets have been in Europe and US, which so tyranny of distance is harder. But as as Asia-Pac starts building their healthcare capabilities, I think Australia has a, a massive op- opportunity to at least sort of supply those markets. And I, I mean, biotech is, and it's evolving as well. So yes. there's the, the typical drug development, which is where Argenica sits and, and that they're huge markets, right? So you can, you know, the, the deals that happen and the M&A activity in drug development is, is quite large and still the majority of, I guess, the, the deals that happen within biotech, but coming through uh, medical devices, digital health. And those sorts of things are the types of things that Australia can do really well. So we can leverage the skill sets that we have here anyway in terms of our engineering skill sets. And I think for WA in particular, you know, especially coming even out of the mining industry. So can we look at what skills we have in engineering, software development, data science and and build those into a really sustainable medical device and, and healthcare industry? When you define biotech, are yep. you say that's fairly all-encompassing. Very. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess you know, and it, well, I um, sit on the WA chapter of Oz Biotech, which is the national biotech sort of member body, and it does encompass 
even to almost ag tech, right? So yes. it's all those sort of biological type of applications in science. So it's it's pretty all-encompassing. It Well, when you think about if we're talking ag tech alongside digital tech. Yes. Um, it, I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's very all-encompassing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in WA, are there any – when we look at the research and tax advantages of of locality. Yep. How do we sit? Keep in mind, I know we're only concentrating on a portion of what you've done in your life, but yeah. where do we sit geographically? Mm. How do we, are we placed well? WA in particular? Yes. Or, so I guess the tax incentives, uh, that's all, all federally run. So the R&D tax incentive for Australia is extremely attractive to, to smaller companies that are not generating revenue. So small biotech companies can get 43.5 cents back on the dollar in R&D, as can, you know, a junior miner, any any of those smaller companies, which is extremely attractive to set yes. up to, to set up a company in Australia. In terms of then what states do, it's really those grant programs, so state-by-state type of grant programs to help, I guess, sort of really help companies de-risk some of the technology to a point where then you can get that, that private investment in. Yes. So that's, that's sort of where grants tend to play. WA has some, some sort of grant programs. They're definitely not as good as, say, Victoria or Queensland. But I think it's getting there. So I think the WA government has uh, recently released a strategy for life sciences industry. Okay. And I think, you know, the industry had a, I guess, you know, a hand in sort of helping to shape that strategy. And we all agree that, you know, as a, as a business, we, we will never rely on government handouts. I, I don't think anyone should run their business that way. But there is a role for governments to play in providing grant funding to help de-risk technologies which are risky, right? So just to help them get to that next stage of commercialisation and get that follow-on investment from private investors. Yes. From that perspective, what role do you see the universities playing? Because you've got some good experience in that. Yeah. Right, yes. and then I'm not just in Western Australia, but nationally, and then yeah. we can come back to WA. But how does that role mould in to developing biotech sector, yeah. or the opportunity for a biotech sector to flourish? Yeah, so universities obviously play a huge role in the biotech industry, and in that they're incubating the technology, the IP that will spin into these companies. So spin out of the university and spin into these companies. So that's a pretty typical model. Um, and that's the model that we, we had for our Genica. So, you know, IP created with within the University of WA and the Parent Institute that we spin into a company to, to be able to get investment into that company. Because Ultimately, there's only so far that a university can take technology before yes. it needs that private investment in a commercial vehicle because investors want that return on their investment. So yes. I think what universities probably could do better is is manage those assets, manage the IP, be a little bit more willing to give up that IP and a little bit more flexible in the types of models that can get that sort of that IP out of the university. And, and off and running. And off and running, yes, absolutely. Yes, yep. yep. And how does that relate to, say, I mean, with, mindful of your role with Ausbiotech, yep. how does that relate to the other side of Australia with regards to Melbourne and Sydney? Yeah, look, I, and Brisbane? I, yeah, I think generally universities across Australia aren't fantastic at getting the IP out and, and commercialising it. I mean, UQ has UniQuest, so they're probably the premier kind of 
uh, example of, of commercialising IP, life sciences IP out of university. So they, they do it well, but they've also got the luxury of a lot of money that goes into that right. pursuit. So because they've had a couple of wins essentially where they've been able to make a, a fair bit of money on commercialising life sciences technology. So I think, you know, and then pumping that money back into that, that tech transfer or that commercialisation part of the university. And look, universities ebb and, ebbs, ebb and flow with who is actually running it at the time so, yes. and how much emphasis that they want to put on commercialisation as opposed to research and teaching and, yeah. And, and it becomes a, a commercial issue probably for the university more so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they, they pump a lot of money in and they're not seeing runs on the board, it's like any business, right? So yep, yep. it kind of gets cut. Yep. And just to flow on from there, when you look at the types of businesses that are emerging within the sector, so if we go forward to you became the inaugural director for the WA Data Science Innovation Hub. Mm-hmm. Now, data science, basically, you're focused on building the data science ecosystem in WA. Yeah. If we use that, but we also tie in your experience with the consultancy side with KPMG and EY and PwC, what types of business models are emerging that seem to be worth more than others or is it more not like that um you know say drug development versus device yeah so i think so there's a couple of things at play there and that's that's largely the cost that it it takes to take these things through the commercialization pathway so there's probably a couple of distinct business models so for digital health for medical devices where the regulatory pathway hurdles are smaller and the cost to develop these products is smaller compared to drug development, then those companies can stay private. And there's some fantastic examples of WA companies that are private. So Oncarez being one of them, which is technology that spun out of UWA as well. And Kath Giles, who's, who's doing a fantastic job running that company. They will stay private because, you know, they can and they can get enough sort of of those value inflection points with smaller amounts of investment. And same for digital health, it's just easier. For drug development, you know, there's a lot of small listed drug development companies on the ASX and that's purely to access capital. That yes. it's, it's a risky business developing drugs and it's hard to get that private investment without any guarantee of liquidity of that investment until years and years later. So that model tends to be... IPO, you know, so get some some early stage pre-IPO money in with the promise to to IPO that company. So there is some upside for those people that are willing to invest. The scalability of of each one of them though is clearly if you're onto something quite unique. Yeah. You've got a unique selling point being Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, whatever that might be, yeah, you can scale it across the world. Absolutely, and that that's the beauty of the healthcare industry, you know, yes. that it's you know, if you're going after a, a big market, so, you know, with Argenica, we're looking at stroke, we're looking at traumatic brain injury. These are huge challenges within the healthcare industry. There's no therapeutics out there that can protect brain cells. So we're trying to, we're trying to go, go after a massive global market, all, all from Perth, which is doable, right? So, Well, it's quite interesting. We, we can move to Argenica. I just had one, if we just go sideways quickly Mm. for a second, I noticed that in a period of time when you were working as a consultant, you got married. 
I did. To a guy that you knew in Netherlands. Yes. Very sad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I live in Netherlands and, now and too. And you live in Netherlands now too. Very sad. Um, well, what's important is lots of our listeners want to just understand a little bit more mm. to you than just yeah, um, yeah. the professional side. So I noted that and, and you've gone on, you've now got three beautiful children. I do. Yes. Yeah. So it's been a, a hectic decade. So we've just had our 10 year wedding anniversary. I actually met my husband in Melbourne. Oh, um, right. Okay. Yes. Yes. As you do, you know, the, the, <laughs> the boy that grew up a few streets away, meet him in Melbourne. Yeah, so, so we had our, our first child in Melbourne, so that was when I was working with Ernst & Young and then actually got approached by KPMG when I think when he was about six months old to move back to Perth and, yeah, sort of help out in the Perth office. So we took the opportunity, family was back here and then, yeah, have just been juggling two more children after that. And so how old, are, how old are they now? So they're nine, seven and almost five. Right, okay. Yeah, all, all in full-time school, so happy days. <laughs> Look, I must say, I ask this question regularly, but how do you go with that work-life balance, being a mum, mm. you know, and and the kids are always active. You, yep. I, I can tell yep. straight yeah. away by your, by your body <laughs> language, it's a busy life. <laughs> it is, it is. I know, I think my husband's been away on the weekend and, um, you know, Footy and netball Friday night, yeah. soccer Saturday <laughs> afternoon, footy netball gymnast, uh, footy gymnastics and Oz kick. It's just like, oh, God. Yeah, so look, it's, I, I try to be reasonably organised and luckily my husband is hugely hands-on. I don't think I could do it if he wasn't hands-on. But, yeah, I think it's, it's we, just, we just make it work, right? Yeah, yeah, just yeah. get up early and, you know, and, and the job that I have with my office in Netherlands, I'm keeping it all very... <laughs> Very Netherlands focused. Very Netherlands focused. Um, you know, as, as long as, you know, I can sort of maintain that flexibility and I maintain the flexibility with my team as well, you know, you just switch the, the laptop on again at, at seven o'clock at night. But I'm really conscious of sitting down and having dinner with the kids yes. and, you know, just those little things that you can, can kind of do and just trying to keep on top of it all. So. And are any of them showing the love of science? My eldest, yes, right. he, yes, maths in particular. So he's uh, he's loves maths, which is yeah, which is great for me. My husband comes from more of a creative side. You right. know, his dad was in advertising, and so my my middle one, my daughter is uh, she's she's not into maths, which my eldest cannot understand. <laughs> Why do you love maths? It's so good, <laughs> but she's yeah, she's more the creative type. So, oh. and then my my youngest, my almost five year old, is just a madman. So. Who knows? Who knows? Still working it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Liz, you jumped from being a consultant into the into the innovation hub, and then you thought, right, well, now's the time to take a step in the direction of corporate. Yeah. And 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 now you're running a listed company in Argenica Therapeutics. Yeah. Can you just give us a bit of an insight into how that evolved? Oh, and yeah. yeah, yeah. So, look, I. When I was at KPMG, I was running the national team from Perth and, you know, I think my youngest was, was nine months old when I kind of went and stepped back into that role and when he started calling me daddy, all the kids started calling me daddy all the whole day and that's when something in my brain just clicked and I went, mm, I might need a, a more of a Perth-based job. So that's when I moved into the data science hub, which was fantastic. So no travel, flexible work, yes. you know, fan, uh, greatly sort of supported and so I loved that role in the data science hub and wasn't, I guess, necessarily looking to leave, but I knew that I always wanted to 
get back into biotech. Like that that sort of always had always been my plan and always been my path. And having sat on the board of the Parent Institute, I knew the work that Professor Bruno Maloney was doing on the, the drug that we have in Argenica. And um, I knew that UWA had, had spun it out. And then so the chairman, Jeff Pocock, and uh, chief operating officer who was at UWA, Dr. Samantha South, they had sort of approached me and asked if I was interested. I wanted to see a bit more data. So I'm sort of extremely passionate about biotech as long as there's fantastic data sort yes. of sitting behind it. So went and, and read all the, the papers again, wanted to see them sort of, you know, push it a little bit longer in terms of the development. And then it all just sort of, it all just started happening. It just sort of started clicking and I thought, you know, there's, and, and I guess probably second guess myself, you know, like, can I actually do this? Can I run a listed company? I've worked with so many listed companies, but can I actually do it myself? And I think, you know, that's just human nature, isn't it? Just to, to kind of go, am I good enough? Can I, you know, can I actually make this work? And I thought I've got to just dive in the deep end and when am I ever going to be able to combine my neuroscience skills and my corporate skills in a listed biotech environment in Perth? Like the chances of that happening is probably I was going to nil. ask that. So, it's like yeah. it, it almost seems like the perfect fit. Yeah, exactly. With your love of well, – I mean you, you came out with a PhD in neuroscience, yeah. first-class honours. Yeah. You've then gone to Oxford. Yeah. You've come back. You completed in UWA and, and – the journey to this point mm. is all sort of pat- makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, not by design. <laughs> just well, uh, that's the question, really, yeah, yeah. is it? It's, yeah. it's more that that's the way it's played, played out. out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but I think you know when, especially when I was in Melbourne with EY and I was doing a lot of work with the M and A team and doing you know sort of with Biotex as well. And I just that's where you know when you you get that sort of that spark in you that you, I was like, yeah, this is, this is what I really love. So yeah, I was just absolutely stoked really to, to be able to get the opportunity to well, run uh, Argenica. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, so you were appointed in March? March, March yeah. of so 21. So just before the IPO, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then how did you find the IPO process? Yeah, look, fine. I mean, there's challenges. I, I didn't have a huge amount to do with the, the book build. So I guess it was sort of developing those relationships with our, you know, our larger shareholders and making sure that they had the confidence in me to, to back me and, and stick with the company because it's, you know, the, the IPO did, you know, not well initially, but then, you know, it kind of went from, from 20 cents to a dollar in early January, obviously has come off a bit. But yeah, so it was quite a wild ride as the share price was ticking up. And I guess, you know, it's, it's a great story to tell. And I, I love telling the story and so I found that kind of that promotion side of it post the IPO great because I just I'm so passionate about the project and the potential of it that well yeah. well let's just touch on that then I mean the vision of Argenica Therapeutics it really told a story commercialized best in class novel neuroprotective therapeutics to reduce brain cell death following stroke and other brain injuries mm-hmm. now the total addressable market for this is phenomenal. Yes. Um, we're talking 15 million people have a stroke each year. Yeah. And I'm quoting the stats out of your presentation. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I mean, it's, it is a huge market. It is, yeah. There's just one page on your presentation which really just flows only 10% will recover almost completely, low recovery rate due to brain cell damage. So go back. Mm-hmm. What you've got. Yep. And the developing, should I say, yeah. is a drug to try and combat that. Yes, yeah. And 
And I think for our listeners, we're all, I mean, if I was to talk um, as in a general sense, everyone's impacted by something to do with the brain mm-hmm. and whether that be Alzheimer's, whether that be stroke related, yeah. we're talking mm. concussion, we're talking mm-hmm. sporting injuries. There's, there's such a broad mix here. So it'd be quite interesting to hear from you, Liz, on the brain. Yep. On the brain and then and then how that evolves into what you're doing, but then in a broader scale. Yeah. Um, because I'm sure that what you're doing through your drug, ARG007, has probably got other uses yeah, outside of what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But it's also as a general conversation about the brain. Yeah. Yeah, so... It's not often I get to speak to such a, <laughs> a gifted brain expert. Oh, it's been a while since I uh, actually was in the lab, but yeah, so look, the brain is a, a fascinating organ and as I said before, the reason that I, I wanted to pursue neuroscience. So, but the problem with the brain is it's it needs so much oxygen, right? So when you deprive the brain of oxygen, so that might be after a heart attack it might be, you know, following a stroke, it might be a knock to the head. It really can't cope. And it's the brain is part of the central nervous system. So once those brain cells die, they are dead. They're gone. There's there's no replacing them. So that's the biggest challenge with the brain. So a lot of the work I did in my PhD and the research in stroke at what is now Perrin, it was very much looking at how you can induce neuroplasticity. So once those brain cells are dead, can you get other parts of the brain to take up that sort of functional recovery? What we're trying to do here with ARG007 is to stop the brain cell death. So following a stroke, so an ischemic stroke, you've got a clot in a blood vessel, that's depriving a certain area in the brain of oxygen. So there's an ischemic Stroke. stroke. Could yes. you just explain that? Yeah. So, an, so there's two main types of stroke: an ischemic stroke, and that makes up around 85% of all strokes, and that's caused by a clot. Okay. So you get a clot in the blood vessel. The other type is a hemorrhagic stroke, which is a bleed on the brain. So we we focused at Argenica on ischemic stroke, and so when you get that clot in a blood vessel, you get a lack of oxygen in that part of flowing to that part of the brain, and so. It only takes about three seconds for for those brain cells right near that clot to start dying. And then you get this sort of cascade out of cell death. So brain cells or neurons talk to each other. But when one dies, it sort of causes this cascade for the next one it's connected to to die. And that just sort of proliferates out and grows that area of cell death in the brain as time goes on. So, So, So we're starting first cell death at three seconds. Yes. And then from that point onwards, It'll just, we've yeah, got a time it, issue exactly. relating to the point of the stroke yep. to when we can address it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but at that point, it's going to keep because it's a domino effect. Yeah, exactly. So, so time becomes critical. Exactly. And that, that's the saying in, in stroke is that time uh, is brain. So the critical thing for stroke patients is to get them into the hospital as soon as possible. The problem is that you can't tell what type of stroke a patient is having. So you don't know whether it's an ischemic stroke or that hemorrhagic stroke, which is the bleed on the brain. And the treatments are quite different. So it's really important that that patient gets to hospital, that they get diagnosed. And then the, the treatment for ischemic stroke is either you have get a mechanical thrombectomy, so 
a neurointerventional radiologist will go in and pull the clot out. Okay. Or they'll administer a drug called TPA, which essentially dissolves the clot. But if you administer TPA to a patient that's had a hemorrhagic stroke, it exacerbates the bleeding and can result in death. So, so critical to get that patient diagnosed. But all the while, that takes time, right? So, fine, if you live in Netherlands near Charlie's, then, yes. you know, you're getting into ED and through to uh, diagnosis relatively quickly. But if you're flying down from Broome, yes. you know, that's problematic. So, uh, what we're trying to do with this drug is to be able to give have it administered by paramedics. So you're stopping that cascade of cell death. You're buying that patient time to get to the hospital and to get so, the clot removal. So you're looking to have it administered on site yep. at that time. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. So as soon as practically possible when so the really we're first relying, responders. Yeah, the first responders arrive yep, yep. and they deliver. Yep. The drug. ARG yep. 007. Yep. And, and where do we sit in the scale of that being used in a – day-to-day basis. How far away are we? So we are just about to go into our phase one clinical trial and that is in healthy volunteers. So to date, what Bruno Maloney at the Parent Institute has done is he's gathered a huge amount of data on the efficacy of the drug in animal models of stroke. So now that we've got all that data, we've completed all our sort of preclinical safety work. So that's looking at does the drug produce any adverse effects in animals in terms of toxicity? Is it safe on the lungs? Is it safe on the heart? Is it getting sort of metabolised and excreted from the body uh, effectively? So now that we're sort of getting all that data, that gives us the data to say, okay, we can actually administer this to humans and we'll do it in healthy humans first. And that trial will be done throughout the second half of this calendar year. And then we'll look to administer it to patients that have had a stroke in a phase two trial. Okay, that was going to be my question. How do you find the people in phase one? The healthy volunteers. The he- healthy volunteers that poss- do you possibly, want to be one? Well, possibly aren't <laughs> having a stroke. Yes, no. So we, we don't want them to have a stroke no, in phase right. one. Okay. Yeah, so they come into the clinical trials facility, which is just down at Charlie's Linear, and they get administered the drug and then they stay in for 48 hours. They get their bloods taken. We assess them for, for any unusual sort of adverse reactions to the drug. So there's a Linear has a database of about 30,000 people. We will advertise, we'll put it on LinkedIn, we'll put it on Facebook, but it's usually sort of younger people, they get paid. So any of your listeners out there that want to sign up to Linear and, and help medical research would be, uh, would be amazing. Right. Yeah. But then phase two is when you then get to put it into practice. Yes. Oh, yes. At first responder level. No. So in phase two, what we'll likely do, um, and we will work really closely with the FDA in regards to the trial design to make sure that we're... Just to pause there, FDA... Oh, yeah, Food and Drug Administration in the, the US, which right. is essentially our target market in the long term. So we will make sure that obviously we're, we're designing the trial exactly how they want it. Yes. And so would likely deliver it in the emergency department. So as soon as the stroke patient comes into ED, then we'll, we'll administer it there. There's still about a 90-minute window from the time that that patient comes into ED to receiving a treatment. So whether it be thrombectomy or TPA because they've got to go through all the diagnosis, so getting scans, et cetera. 
So that'll that'll still kind of give us some good indication of if the drug's working. But the primary aim of that phase two will, again, be around safety. Mm. So making sure then the drug is actually safe to give in patients that have had a stroke because in when you have a stroke, your brain is compromised, right? So you can get the blood-brain barrier can sort of become an issue and leaky and there's other things going on in stroke patients that so we need to make sure that it's still safe and well-tolerated in those patients. And then the next step is into a phase three. So that's a multi-site global trial where we'll bring in hundreds of patients that have had a stroke and look really then deep dive into the efficacy of the drug in those patients. And how long does this total process take? It's a very good question. Right, <laughs> so, okay. So, so it's, not a, it's not a given that it's a, it's a short term. No, no. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, this is why you know, investing in, in drug development is a bit of a long-term game. But we envisage that the phase two will start next year and that will go sort of probably around 18 months and then we'll be, you know, already planning sort of that, that larger phase three, which could take up to sort of three years to complete. Okay. But, but I guess from a commercial point of view, you know, when we move into phase three, we, we would aim to do that in a sort of co-development type of agreement with a large pharmaceutical company. Okay. Logical question, but when you look at the size of this total addressable market and the impact it has on humanity, mm. do you have the regulators like the FDA, as you alluded to earlier, saying, good on you guys, let's try and fast track this? Like, you know, and yeah. because we can see there's a benefit yep. for everyone if yep. we can get this right. Yeah, absolutely. So so you have a huge amount of engagement with the regulators, so FDA in the US or TGA in Australia, around the data that you're that you're collecting and, and how you might fast track that. That sort of thing is quite common for rare diseases. So um, where there's just absolutely nothing available, there's you know, horrendous outcomes for those patients and they're really rare diseases. So the FDA will sort of fast track those type of therapeutics. Sure, yeah. sure. I think when you look at this and the opportunity set, it's quite large. Clearly you're very passionate and I can see Perrin UWA would be very passionate to see it mm. commercialised as well. Yeah, yeah. And the long-term effects. Now, if we could just go a step further, once you go past phase three and you are commercial, where can you look at this in other applications. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and maybe I'd just like to see if you could expand on other diseases. Yeah. So I put into perspective Alzheimer's, but yeah. I also really am quite intrigued about do brain cells die in concussion and those sorts of things? Because yeah. from what you're, I can gather, it's a lack of oxygen to the brain which starts the cascade yeah. effect. Yeah. Three seconds and then we're on. Yeah. What happens in concussion? What happens in when plaque comes onto the brain. Yeah, yeah. Things like, like that. that. So absolutely. So the I guess what we sort of look at is the mechanism of how our drug is working. So what's it actually doing to the neuron? And it, it reduces, so you get a calcium influx when you get that sort of lack of oxygen to the brain. But that calcium influx can be seen in a number of other types of neurological conditions. 
But inflammation is another big one and say in something like traumatic brain injury, mild traumatic brain injury, which is concussion, you get injury to the axons as well. So you get inflammation, you get axonal injury, you get this calcium influx. So all these sorts of things that happen in a lot of different neurological conditions. So we have a a premise that our drug will work in a number of these different conditions just because we know how the drug works. So we know what the mechanism of action of that drug is. So a couple of the the ones that we, we're really pushing ahead with are in traumatic brain injury. So we have data in more severe traumatic brain injury and it shows that it, there's a reduction in that axonal injury when our drug is administered. So we're looking to how, well, how does that actually work with more moderate TBI that you might get, say, in a combat injury or on a fall or something like that. And yes. then mild repeated traumatic brain injury, which you would have in, say, concussion or domestic violence type of incidents. So that, that's definitely an area that we're really keen to explore. Yes. The other area that we've got quite good data is in um, hypoxic ischemic and en- Cephalopathy. Wow. Uh, which is, can, can you? Yeah. Can you? I say HIE. <laughs> um, I've, I've had to practice that one uh, many times, but hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Okay. Uh, so that, that is a lack of oxygen to uh, the baby either immediately prior, during or post childbirth. So it is one of the leading causes of death and disability worldwide and you know kids that have cerebral palsy even learning difficulties a lot of them will have this lack of oxygen during labor this so is, i was going to ask are we talking here about the labor part of yeah and and that lack of oxygen during that labor process yeah so it, it generally yeah sort wow. of happen and it can happen from things like preeclampsia those type of conditions that you see leading up to labor as well so at the moment the only treatment for those babies is hypothermia, which is to cool them down. And the reason for that is that hypothermia is a fantastic protector of brain cells because it shuts it shuts down that cascade of cell death, but it also shuts down every other organ in the body. So okay. you, you're essentially putting the babies on ice. So we we believe that our drug can make a real impact and difference for those babies. So targeting specifically that toxicity that's happening in the brain, that cell death that's happening in the brain without, you know, needing to to induce hypothermia in these babies. So that's a really, really exciting area that, that I just think will be fantastic. And we have an incredible uh, research fellow at the Parent Institute who uh, is dedicating his life to that, So, uh, which is fantastic. Oh, Liz, this is just mm. fascinating, fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Well, I look at uh, what you're doing with Argenica and the opportunity set, and it's very well laid out, I must say. And in terms of on the commercial side, and I'll come back a step with regards to what you were doing on the consultancy side, within Argenica and, and most biotech companies, there's a patent, mm-hmm. a patent protecting the, yep. the intellectual property. How far have you got to run on your patents? So That seems to be a fairly large question. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So we own all the patents, so they've all come out of UWA. They all expire. So we've got US, uh, Europe, Japan and China protection and they all expire around 2034. 
Okay, um, so it's quite a long runway. Yeah, but look, as every biotech company would be doing, we have a, an IP strategy. You know, we're always looking at ways to extend our intellectual property and there's a number of ways that you can do that around formulations and combination therapies and all sorts of things. So we're really conscious because that's a, a massive kind of commercial driver essentially for pharma companies. They want an, you to have enough runway on your patent so that they can have that exclusive right of your drug yes. to, to get into the market. So. And is that the ultimate goal? Are you looking to build a Perth-based significant biotech company or is it ultimately an acquisition? Yeah, look. Um, or is that that will play out? Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, with, with sort of the single asset and, and the business model for all small drug development companies is really to, to get an acquisition, you know, to, so that that, uh, that drug will get bought out by a large pharma company who has distribution channels set up. There's reps in countries, they've got KOLs, they've got, you know, huge marketing and finance teams and, you know, to try and build that from scratch here would be, would be challenging. But it will show amazing success that, you know, there's in that value chain of life sciences that Australia can play a massive part in that preclinical and that early clinical development and and yes it, it kind of if it has to go to a large farm offshore then that's challenging but there's work for the government to do to attract those large farmers back into Australia yes, so yes. Pfizer's just left WA which is you know 400 jobs have gone and it's it's heartbreaking so if we can do something to to attract them back and show that Australia has you know, the proximity to the, the Asia-Pac market. Can we set up manufacturing facilities here? Can we distribute from here would be incredible. That's a great segue into your current board and advisory roles. Mm-hmm. And, and you've just sort of touched on, on what we can do as WA as a whole, what the WA government, what the federal government can do to assist in biotech. And it, it is sad to see Pfizer leave our shores. Yeah. You sit on the National Energy Resources Australia Board, which is a federal government growth centre for energy resources. And, and I, I noticed a federally funded not-for-profit organisation that works with partners in government, research, science and industry to help decarbonise Australia's energy sector. Yeah. I'll pause that one. You're also on the Chamber of Commerce and Industry for WA as General Counsel. You're also a board member of the Stan Perrin Charitable Foundation, the Research Investment Advisory Panel. Mm-hmm. You're a board member for SciTech in Perth, which is a very well-known institution and a committee member for Ausbiotech Perth. And you've just stepped off the board for the Parent Institute of Neurological and Translational Sciences in Perth. I think you've got a fair bit of credibility here to have a view on how we might be able to tackle yes. these issues and that you've just raised. Yeah. And, and I'd just be interested, when you look, we can look at biotech in singular form and we can look at WA from a commerce, from the Chamber of Commerce and Industry perspective as well. Yeah. From the NERA perspective, when we're looking at decarbonisation opportunities. Can I just get a little bit of a, your insights into these, this area? Yeah, sure. Um, and I will just, on SciTech, I'm not on the board, I'm on the advisory board. So I'll just correct that in yeah, case sure. there's any, uh, any SciTech people listening. You know, WA is a hard one. It's, it's always, I guess, government's sort of previously have been very focused on the mining sector and I absolutely, I get that. But, you know, even in my role in the data science hub, you know, I'd go to Sydney and I'd go to Melbourne and even data scientists would, would be like, well, I don't really want to really come to Perth because I'm not that passionate about mining. So there's not much else there um, going on. So 
I guess, you know, even through NERA, through my other board roles, we, we're trying to diversify the economy in WA. We're trying to say, hey, you know, there's other things going on here outside of, of mining and resources. And if you are interested in healthcare, if you are interested in the energy transition, uh, hydrogen being a fantastic one. And, and at NERA, you know, we're doing a lot of work around hydrogen as well and setting up uh, hydrogen technology clusters, which have been a fantastic way to collaborate on hydrogen and innovate and get those technologies out there. So, you know, we, we're really trying to fly the flag to say, let's look at other things that we can do. Let's look at what people want in terms of careers and jobs that are sustainable here in WA. And look, the, the WA government is is doing a lot of work on it too. So they're extremely passionate about hydrogen. They um, have just released a life sciences industry strategy, which is all great. But, you know, I guess from a life sciences point of view, it would be good to now look at, okay, well, what's that sort of, what does that actually, how do you implement that strategy? And what does that look like in terms of funding to the sector or support for the sector? We have the um, MTP Connect, which is the medical technology and pharmaceutical kind of Australian growth centre. So similar right. to NERA, but for, but for uh, MedTech and Pharma. So the WA government has invested in a West Australian hub and which is run by Tracy Wilkinson and she's doing a fantastic job of really sort of flying the flag for the industry here in WA, working with the WA government to say, hey, look at us, we are here. Um, what WA does amazingly well is punches above its weight in research. So the research institutes that we have here are absolutely world-class. So, you know, Perrin being one of them, yes. Ear Sciences Australia, um, Lion Eye Research Institute, Telethon Kids, you know, absolutely like world-class research. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yep. So what we don't then have is that sort of following industry. So how do, we, how do we build the capabilities? How do we ensure that companies that are spinning out are staying in WA? You know, I, I roadshow on the East Coast and so many of the, the brokers and investors and fund managers are like, why are you in Perth? Like, why would you be doing biotech from Perth? Why wouldn't you be doing biotech from Perth? You know, we are on the same time zone as Singapore, China. It's actually easier to do business from here in terms of time zones with Europe and the US and, you know, and there is just a really fantastic life sciences community here. And I, I'm just so privileged to be part of it. And I think we can make it something phenomenal. Thank you so much for sharing that. What does the government believe in the, as a long-term sustainable industry? Have they got, if they've just released a life sciences paper on it, Yeah, there's clearly some proactivity going on. Yes. Yeah. So uh, they have just, they've got a new director of life sciences within JETSI, so Department of Jobs, Tourism, Science and Innovation. And um, he, uh, he's tasked, and he's actually Roger Cook's previous um, senior policy advisor, Gino. He's sort of tasked with, with looking at how the government can work with the life sciences industry to build it. Well, that's and, fantastic. Which is great, yeah. yeah. So, so they are starting to now actually put money in the – they announced $8 million sort of investment into the sector. $2.5 million of that will go to, to JETSI to start building government's capability in life sciences. And they're really open. They're really willing to listen and they're quite engaged with the industry in WA to, to see – how they can make it work. I just have to ask, Liz, on that, when you look at, with all your experience from the research side through to the consultancy, the research and tax incentives, 
to grow a, a business in the biotech sector or in the life sciences sector through to being in the corporate leader. How far does $8 million go? <laughs> Not very far. No. No, no. Well, and I, I know that it, it, like it's yeah, nothing, nothing's cheap. No, I'm, not, I'm just no. trying to get a gauge on how that, in terms of trying to support the sector. Yes. So no, that that won't for what go, it could be worth. That won't that won't go that far, unfortunately. Right. Um, so I think the sector needs a lot more support, but it doesn't necessarily again sort of amount to dollars, right? So. It's looking at, well, you know, what happened with Pfizer? Why did they leave and what could have, what I guess could have the government done to sort of support that? Looking at programs to get people to return back to Perth. So capability is one of the big things lacking in the biotech sector because when you, often when you do an undergrad here or PhD here, you'll go off. So you'll go to the UK, the US, wherever to do postdoctorate research. Um, so it's about attracting those people back. And, and so it's a bit of the chicken and the egg. We need the people back here to grow the industry, but we need the industry here to attract the people back. So I think what the government can do is start really telling the story of, of what's happening in biotech in WA because we have some fantastic companies. We have some fantastic listed companies here. Yes. So, you know, Orthocell has been around, you know, doing fantastic things and actually getting their medical device technology into market. Resonance Health is another one. Yeah, so we, we absolutely have some fantastic seeds that have been planted to, to be able to set up the biotech industry here. And then ensuring that those companies that do set up here don't get lured by other governments. Yes. And that happens quite a bit, you know, you'll You'll have other governments saying, well, if you do your clinical trials in, in our location, we'll subsidise some of that money. And yeah, so, so just looking at, I guess, different ways to, to keep business here and, and grow the businesses that are here and ensure that, you know, that you're attracting people back here. Yes, yes. Yeah. Look, thanks for those fantastic insights. It really, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time because it's really, really interesting and, and your experiences particularly because you're coming on such, you're coming from such an, an expert perspective on a range of the whole field. It's interesting. I saw when I was looking through the Oxford University, I noticed that Professor Merrin Voisey, an Oxford scientist, was named Australian of the Year in the UK for a leading role in the development of the life-saving Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Mm. What an amazing, amazing effort. Amazing, yeah, 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 incredible. And Australian of the Year in the UK. I mean, it just shows a little bit about what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, you know, yeah. We've got this great skill set coming out of Australia. Yeah. And and you're in that bracket and mm. you're. I mean, it's great that you're, we're being able to get your insights. I just wanted to finish off by saying you are a very, very busy person with your family and your career and your profession and you're passionate. You're, you're, I can just tell you're so passionate about what you do and you, you really have a care for the industry as a whole. Do you have any time for anything else? You got sporting ambitions or you, uh, you, barrack, you barrack for a team? Yes, so I do. I do barrack for the Dockers, which is just so awesome at the moment. <laughs> well done, you're <laughs> it's been a long ball. time since I've been able to say that. Yeah, so look, I don't other other things. I mean, I'm running my kids around. Yeah, I love yeah. Pilates. That's kind of you know my my time on my own three mornings a week uh, before getting the kids off to school. <laughs> um, and then weekends, yeah, try and try and fit in a Dockers game. I had my daughter's seventh birthday party as I was trying to keep an eye on the Geelong game. Terrible planning by me to uh, what to, a win! 
What a win. What a win. What a win. I was actually, I was down in Geelong with my, my eldest when we um, we beat Geelong in the, the preliminary final uh, to get into the grand final. So it it does always bring back uh, fantastic <laughs> memories. <laughs> oh, good on you. The Cattery. It yeah. might be your year. It could be. Don't it's, jinx it, though. It's exciting. Don't jinx it. Liz, look, I, I'm very mindful of time, but I love the idea when I'm reading through your profile and, you know, you're a life sciences, technology and data strategy, commercialization and innovation specialist. What a title. Mm. You know, that, that's what you've, you've positioned yourself <laughs> I've as. I've made a, that up. And, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's <laughs> fantastic. But look, you've given us such an insight and what you're doing with Argenicare and what you've been able to do uh, with your life so far in terms of what you're offering the, not only just Australia, but the world in terms of your neuroscience understanding is quite spectacular. And to have you on the show has been a real treat. And and thanks a lot for coming in and just giving us some insights because I know everyone would be really, really interested in what you're up to. Thanks, Tim. I've uh, I've loved it and it's been great to chat. And thank you so much for the interest in the life sciences sector in WA. So we don't we don't always get the opportunity. So I appreciate it. Good on you, Liz. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Tim. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Harleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.